And I would invite you to take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians. And tonight we finish the first chapter. We're going to look at verses 26 through 31, but for context, let's begin our reading in verse 18. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greek, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So if you look again at verse 24, Paul had mentioned those who are called, and that's the point he picks up now in the verses we're considering tonight, the calling of the Corinthians. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word remains forever. Well, Paul has been talking about how with God there is a complete inversion of our expectations in the words of one commentator, this is about how God inverts, subverts, and converts the expectations of the world. Um, how he inverts, subverts, and converts human wisdom. What we, by default, would consider wise or powerful is actually folly and weakness to God. And what we think is folly and weakness on God's part, if it's coming from God, it is actually it's actually wisdom and power beyond measure. The primary example Paul used of this uh, in the passage we considered last week is preaching, right? That God uses preaching to save people, and it's preaching of a preaching itself seems weak and, and foolish, and it's a message that itself is weak and foolish because it's the message of how a cross can save people. And so God is pleased through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And the last time I made the point of saying God loves preaching and so should we. And that's absolutely true because it says there 
uh, that much. But uh, it was pointed out to me that, that the emphasis maybe was not clear enough, and I think it's worth returning to. Why does God love preaching? It's not because of what preaching is in and of itself, but it's because of what preaching does. That's why God is pleased with preaching, right? Because it is through preaching that he saves people. God is pleased to save people through preaching, and that's why he loves preaching, because of what it does, even though nobody would ever expect it could do something like that. It seems weak. It seems foolish. It seems, it seems impotent, yet um, that is the message of the gospel, and the Corinthians are going to have a hard time uh, with this message, because in their context, the Corinthians, that is the, the city, the culture of that city, they, they loved the finer things of society. They all would have been or like to have been members of the finer things club. Uh, they're about arts and rhetoric. They're, they are, you know, um, whole foods and pottery barn kinds of people. Uh, they, they only will uh, take the best. And those values seem to have seeped into the church. So that's how the culture views things. But now that's how the, the church is starting to view things and think of things. And um, so that's why Paul recognizes that what he has said so far, that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men, he knows that that's going to be a hard truth for the Corinthians to swallow. And so in order to persuade them of this truth, he gives a powerful proof of it, and that is themselves. Look at verse 26. Paul turns everything back on them and he says, Consider your calling... We see here first how Paul in this passage is going to, to explain God's, God's surprising choice. God's surprising choice. And yet, even though it's surprising, it's really God's singular choice. It's the best choice uh, to pick these Corinthians to call them to salvation. We're going to see God's singular choice. And then uh, we'll close considering a twofold response that we should have. So verse 26, consider your calling, brothers, He's saying to the Corinthians, think about how you got here. Think about how you are part of this church. How did this church get started? Look around and consider how this church is made up, and you'll see see clear proof that God does delight to upturn the wisdom of man by choosing things that appear to be, on the outside, despicable, worthless, unimportant, base. Because he writes... Consider your calling, brothers. So he's about to say something that's a little offensive, but he couches it with this this familial language. Brothers, consider this, brothers. He's saying, I'm right there with you. No, I'm not pointing the finger at you, but let's consider this together. Not many of you were, and I think actually a better translation probably would be our, our, sorry, our. um, In the Greek, there there is no verb. It just says, not many of you uh, according. Right, so so translators have to decide: is it were wise according, or is it are wise? So I think let's read it with the present tense. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many are powerful. Not many are of noble birth. The Corinthian church apparently is made up of people who were not wise according to a worldly standard. Literally in the Greek, it's according to the flesh. So what it looks like on the outside when you just. Basically, what, what you take in with your eyes, um, you, didn't, you don't look impressive. You don't meet the standard uh, or the requirement of the day to be considered wise. Not many of you are wise according to the flesh. 
So the Corinthians, they're people who had low GPAs in high school, if they went to high school at all. Or maybe uh, they're people who uh, could only uh, maintain uh, really low uh, minimum wage kind of jobs. Um, People who didn't care about the opera. They didn't care about uh, style or what they wore. Um, They also were not powerful. Not only were they not wise or, or insightful, but they weren't powerful. They weren't influential. Um, their opinions did not have sway over others in their circles. Then it says they weren't of noble birth either. They didn't have good genes. Uh, literally, the word here uh, translated noble birth is uh, eugenic. It's the word for that we get our English eugenics. It means they, had, they did not have good genes. That was a big deal. You know, what family did you come from? Maybe some of us put stock in that kind of thing today. I, it's kind of fading out, but, you know, several generations ago, and, and certainly in certain parts of the world, that, that made a, a, a big, that was a big deal. Well, you know, uh, especially if you think of marriage. Are you marrying somebody? Uh, we don't really care so much about them, but what about their family? Where are they coming from? Um, in 1772, Parliament passed the Royal Marriage Act, uh, King George III, when he found out that his brother Prince Henry, the Duke of Cumberland, had married the commoner Anne Horton, he persuaded and implored Parliament to pass this Royal Marriage Act, which forbid any royals marrying people of common descent, the common folk, because George felt that his brother's marriage threatened the throne. It threatened the future of the nation. If we're going to bring people who are impure near the throne, then what could happen if somehow they became uh, a king or queen? The Corinthians would have been in full support of such an act, which was repealed a couple years ago, by the way. And yet Paul is saying, how hypocritical of you all. How hypocritical of you. You're not royal. You're not of noble birth. You are common people, and yet God chose you. God chose you. That's verses 27 and 28. But God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what's weak in the world. He chose what is low and despised, even things that are not. He chose nobodies and nothings. And he's talking about the Corinthians. How can you despise God's surprising choice when it actually includes you? If God didn't work this way, you wouldn't have a part In this wonderful story, Paul is saying, you see, God does not call any person based on worldly status. And that's good news for you, Corinthians, because you don't have any. If this is how God worked, you wouldn't be invited. You wouldn't have a seat at the table. Now, why is it, we could ask, that it tends to be the low and despised of society that are called? That's an interesting question, right? Why is it that that's how... God seems to operate. Why is it that it tends to be the low and despised of society that are called? And before I answer that, I want to say, make it very clear uh, and underline this. It's not that the rich are not called or that the wealthy are not called or that the influential don't have a place. That is not what Paul is saying. Uh, Selena Hastings, uh, she was the Countess of Huntingdon. I must have been in a very British mood this week preparing the sermon. But uh, she was one of the great uh, noble women of England uh, during the... um, Uh, great awakening. She was a supporter and a patron. She gave money to the ministries of people like George Whitfield. She she gave a lot of her money to get the gospel out, and she said that she was sure of her salvation because of the letter M. 
the letter M. And so people would say, what do you mean you know you're saved because of the letter M? And she would point people to our passage in verse 26 um, when it says, not many were of noble birth. She says, if it said not any, I would not be saved. But it says not many, not many. So God does call those of all sorts of um, uh, demographics. It's not that he's saying he only chooses those who are not powerful in the world's eyes or aren't rich, aren't influential. That's not the point. But even so, we see there is apparently this proportionality that favors the weak and foolish. So we still return to that question, why does that seem to be the way that things work? Why is it that the lone despised of society are generally those who are called? And here's the reason. It's because the message of salvation and the method of salvation makes sense to them, where it often doesn't to those of nobility or those of status. The, the, the poor or the rejects, the outcasts, can relate to the method of salvation. One New Testament scholar writes this, The foolish, weak, and despised respond more readily to the shame of the cross because they themselves are already shamed. Unlike the powerful, those who are deemed foolish and weak are amenable to receiving the paradox of divine weakness that conveys strength. They respond more readily to the shame of the cross because they themselves belong to the shamed. So it is not that the upper crust of society are excluded. It's that oftentimes the upper crust exclude themselves. <laughs> they say, I don't want anything to do with this. This doesn't make sense to me. I don't need this. It's too debased for them. And the Corinthians needed to be reminded of this reality. Don't, don't become uh, too inflated with a sense of your self-importance that you miss out on the gospel. He wants then to remind uh, the Corinthians that where they are, namely the church and the people of God, has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with anything they had done, anything they had accomplished, anything they had earned. Why, why is it that they belong to God? Well, we're told in verse 30, look there, this is so important. It's because of him, God, the one who shames the weak and brings to nothing things that are and makes out of nothing, some things and somebody's, because of him, this God, you are in Christ Jesus, Corinthians. And Christ Jesus became to us all wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is a wonderful word for all Christians to hear and to remember. Why is it that I belong? Why is it that I'm saved? Why is it that I am part of this society of God's people the answer is only and always because of who christ is because of what christ has done not because of who you are or what you have done it's because of jesus god has made it so that jesus has come to or that the second person of the trinity the son of god has come to earth in the person of jesus to become for us everything that we need for faith and life and salvation and eternity and whatever Christ is, he's, we're told he's four things. He's wisdom, he's righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. This is how it works when you're a Christian. 
You are placed into Christ, and whatever Christ is, you have. Apart from Christ, you have no wisdom, no source of it, no resource for it, no hope of justification, no, no means of growing in godliness, being sanctified, no hope of being bought out of this prison that we call sin and death and hell. But in Christ, you have these things because he's become these things for you. Christ has done it all. The Christian can say, I have all the righteousness I'll ever need, all the sanctification I'll ever need, all the redemption I'll ever need in him. I'll never need more saving. I'll never need to be saved more than once, once I am in Christ. In him I am saved even to the uttermost. Christ has done it all. And so it's a humbling message for the Corinthians. Consider your calling. How did, how did the call of the gospel come to you? Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you had good genes. And yet God was pleased. God loved to extend his call nevertheless to the weak, to the foolish, to those who are nobodies and nothings, and to make you somebodies and somethings in Christ. Because he became for you wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So what sort of response does this call? That's God's surprising choice. That's not how we would operate. I think I mentioned in the sermon last week that quote from somebody that was smarter than me who said that God describing the difference between how God works and how we work. It said that, that we choose people who can be the most help to us, and yet God chooses people to whom he can be the most helpful. He chooses the weak and the low and the despised, so he chooses us. And what's the response? I think we could say there's a, a twofold response that this text calls us to. One is implied in the text, and the other is supplied in the text. Let's talk about the implied one first. Response number one. Number one. We need to change how we evaluate others. We need to change how we evaluate others. Paul lays out so clearly for us how God operates, and it's different from the world, but it shouldn't be different from the church. It's definitely different from how the world operates, but it shouldn't be different from how Christians operate. We need to reflect and, and mediate, uh, or uh, to reflect and uh, uh, think upon uh, the character of our God and then, and then mediate that out to others, to, to resemble that to others, to be a, a conduit for which they can come to see how God is and, and how he works. And we want to be uh, reflective of our Heavenly Father. And so where we see discrepancies in the way that we think, the way we act, the way we behave, we need to change that. We need to repent and to change and that's going to require work. We need to be honest, right? We don't think like this. Verses 26 through 31, in general, do not describe how we think or how we normally would work. Not by default, at least. Um, oh, no, I didn't quote it last week. Here we go. One pastor notes the difference between God and man highlighted in this passage like this. Man chooses those who would be helpful to him. God chooses those to whom he can be the most helpful. We should fall in love with that reality because <laughs> that's, that's how we came to be chosen because God saw us and he said, wow, boy, girl, you need a lot of help. 
and I'm going to be the one to give it to you. And he did it not begrudgingly. He did it with a smile on his face in the person of Jesus Christ. Arms wide open. Let me help you. Let me help you. We should fall in love with that and then seek to emulate that, right? Seek to emulate that. We know what it's like to be passed over for a raise maybe at work, for a promotion, uh, some sort of recognition that we think we deserve and we were passed over. We know what it's like to be picked last, maybe for the kickball team at recess. We know what it's like to, to not be invited to a get-together that our friends are having, or worse yet, we are invited, but we're ignored the whole time by everybody else. We know what that's like. And what sorts of feelings do moments like these conjure up? What, what thoughts run through your head when that kind of thing happens, when you've been passed over, when you've been forgotten, when you've been neglected, when you were not chosen? How do you think? Well, you think like this. I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not good enough for this person, for this calling I, I've received. I'm, uh, maybe I'm not clever enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not attractive enough. Uh, clearly, I have no talent. Obviously, I'm a failure. These are the ways we think. And isn't it terrible how we can make other people feel that way through our actions, by excluding others, by operating according to worldly wisdom? We can make other people feel that way, and other people have made us feel that way. Guess what? God never makes us feel that way, ever. He never makes us feel as though we're nothing, as though we're not important to him. As though we have nothing to to offer, to bring to the table. He never makes us feel that way. The gospel is this paradoxical, uh, does this wonderful paradoxical thing where, where we at the same time can feel so low and so empty and yet so loved and so valued. That's when you know you get the gospel. You can, you can hold those feelings at the same time. And, and there's no contradiction there. No contradiction at all. And so God never makes us feel that way. As Christians, we should never make others feel that way. That kind of sizing up, that evaluation based on externals, it's not permitted in the church. And that, that shows up other places in Scripture. Let's look at a few of them. Let's turn to James. James chapter 2. So James is going to denounce that kind of behavior that operates with that, where worldly wisdom is operating within the church. He says, you're not allowed to do that in the first five verses of James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine a clothing comes into your assembly, i.e. the church, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not, tell me this doesn't sound just like Paul in First Corinthians, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? James is saying, you need to operate the way God operates. Because you belong to him. The church should function differently than the world. So that's the precept here. Show no partiality. That's the command. And 
uh, the principle that undergirds that precept we can find in Galatians. So let's look there now together. Galatians chapter 3. That's after 2 Corinthians. Why is it that we show no partiality in the church beyond the fact that God does not show partiality? We're told this in Galatians chapter 3 and look at verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... Similar language Paul used in 1 Corinthians, right? You are in Christ who became for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So we're talking about union language. You've put on Christ. Christ clothes you. When people look at you, they see Christ. When God looks at you, he sees Christ. And because of that, because you're baptized into Christ, there is neither, verse 28, Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those who belong to this visible church, which you enter through baptism, which is what our confession of faith says. Baptism is the solemn admission into the visible church, the congregation, a local church. Those who belong to the church must throw aside cultural, ethnic, all other sort of disparities. We don't erase differences. We don't say we're all the same. We don't get rid of differences. We get rid of disparities. We get rid of that attitude that says, I'm better than you. Not... We don't have to say, I'm the exact same as you, or my personality gets erased and all this. No, no, no. But we get rid of this idea of disparities. I'm better than you. And that's because if we are in the faith, we are in Christ. We're united to him, and we have him in common. We have Christ in common, which is what baptism represents, Paul says. We've been baptized into Christ. We are in Jesus Uh, One other passage, and then we'll, I think we'll stop flipping around for the most part, but that's 2 Corinthians that speaks of of sort of this this response we should have to the way God operates being that we need to change how we evaluate others is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And 2 Corinthians 5, 16, 17 essentially says the same thing that James and Galatians says. It puts them together. The same precept and the same principle. Look at chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians and verse 16. From now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul here speaks of having a new metric for measuring yourself and others, once you become a Christian. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. That's the same phrase um, that is used in 1 Corinthians. It's translated differently. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. It is according to the flesh. So Paul's using the same language here. And he says, once you become a Christian, you don't operate according to the flesh. You don't use that metric to measure yourself or others. The Christian metric is not after the flesh. It's after the spirit. What matters now is not what I do. It's what Christ has done uh, for me and and through me by his uh, Holy Spirit. I'm I'm not defined by my accomplishments nor by my failures or sins. I'm defined by the righteousness of Christ freely given to me by faith alone. It's not a status that I might be able to achieve in life, but rather the status that's already mine in the Son of God. And so that spiritual metric is what we must use as we evaluate Others. And when we do that, I think we'll find that we're quickly humbled. That new metric 
It, it destroys pride as we learn that there is nothing but level ground at the foot of the cross. It should also create in us an evangelistic zeal and fervor. Right? When we look out in the world, well, we know it doesn't matter what kind of car you drive or how rich and famous you are, how many friends you have. What matters is that you have Christ and we want everybody to have Christ. Everybody needs the same thing. Our hearts melt for the unbeliever, even if they might have all the trappings of a cushy life, because now we're not measuring them according to the flesh. It's according to the spirit. In the church, if nowhere else, people should be evaluated as people. Just as people. Not as uh, performers. How well did you do? But just as people, fellow image bearers of God, those who are equally sinful, equally in need of saving, if nowhere else it should be the church where we evaluate people just as people, that, that really doesn't happen anywhere, does it? It's certainly not happening in the Middle East right now or on many college campuses around our nation where people are being evaluated based on their bloodline, their Affiliation with certain groups, Muslim or Jew, pro-Palestine, pro-Israel. Right? We put people into these categories and then we say, good, bad. Uh, that, you know, that's virtuous. You need to be canceled. If nowhere else, it should be the church that looks upon any and everyone and says, image bearer of God, lost and fallen in Adam, but can be redeemed in Christ. We need to change the way we evaluate others, both inside and outside the church. So that's the response that I think is implied from this text. But then, secondly and finally tonight, a response that is uh, supplied very clearly in the text. Uh, Paul's telling the Corinthians to look at themselves and, and what they receive from Christ, start treating other people differently and start treating themselves differently because of it. But also... Uh, he calls them in, twice over in this text to change the direction of their boasting. So we need to change the way we evaluate others, and we need to change the direction of our boasting. Verse 29 says that the reason God has upturned worldly wisdom is that so no one can boast in the presence of God. And then verse 31 says, alluding to Jeremiah 9, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. I think the question that Paul is pressing upon us here is, where is your confidence? Where is your confidence? Is it in yourself? That is a scary place to put it. By the world standard, he's saying the Corinthians, you know, by the world standards, you're, you're weak and, and you're a fool. By God's standard, you're a condemned sinner. Don't put, don't put your confidence in yourself. That's a lose-lose. Can you make it in this life or the next by pure merit alone? Good luck. That's an anxiety-ridden way to live life, you know, just to just be good enough. You'll always be wondering, well, did I, did I do enough today? Have I done enough? It, it brings anxiety because you're asking that question, but it also brings anxiety because you are not at peace with Almighty God. The only way to have peace in this life is to be at peace with God. And the way to be at peace with God is to praise God, to give him the glory, to boast in him. That's the idea here, to make much of him, to make much of him, to say, you have done it all. In Christ, 
I lack for nothing. In Christ, you've given me everything. So I'm not going to go around and, and, and brag like I'm anything. But, but I will brag about my God, about my Savior. Uh, this is what we were made to do, after all, isn't it? To boast in God. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God, to, to boast in him, to make much of him, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I was reading a book on the history of the Westminster uh, Catechism this past week, and I learned that that famous question and answer is likely uh, plagiarized, uh, I think they were allowed to do it back then, from a catechism that John Calvin had written um, uh, years prior, uh, decades prior. These are the first three questions of Calvin's catechism. It begins by what's asking. Uh, it begins by asking what's the chief end of man, and then what the sovereign good of man is. So, what is man made for, and what will make man happy? Essentially, are the questions. So, question one: What is the chief end of human life? Answer: To know God. Question: Why do you say that? Answer: Because He's created us and placed us in this world to be glorified in us, and it is indeed right that our life, of which He Himself is the beginning should be devoted to his glory. Question three, what is the sovereign good of man? Answer, the very same thing. What's our purpose? To glorify God. What's good for us? The very same thing. When Paul says, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, he's actually not making you do something you don't want to do. This is what we are made to do. This is where we feel the most free, the most fulfilled. It's to give all the glory to the one who's the very beginning of our life, Calvin says. Glorifying God is what we are made to do. It's what we will be doing for eternity and glory. Think about it. What are the saints singing? We get a glimpse of it in Revelation. Worthy am I to receive all glory and honor and power, for I ransom people from... No. Worthy are you. Worthy are you, for you ransomed people from every tribe, language, and nation, made them kingdom and priests. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. All the direction of the boasting in heaven goes to our beautiful Savior. That's the, the theme of the song in heaven. And you can't sing that song in heaven if you don't first sing it here on earth. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would... Change the direction of our hearts to be focused entirely on you and on glorifying you, praising you, boasting in you and what you've done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We so easily can become introspective and, and consumed with ourselves, either with what, we, what we've done, what good things we think we've done, or how worthless and pitiful we, we think we are, and... and we find no joy in either of those, Lord, but uh, we will find the, the purpose for which we were created and true uh, happiness and, and, and goodness in this life if we would boast in you. For if it was not for you, we would not have been called. We are not the wise or the powerful. Uh, we come from a line of sinners in that sense, truly, there is none who is of noble birth. And yet, you were pleased and delighted to uh, call those 
who do not measure up to worldly standards to give us a sense of how the gospel just flips everything on its head and to direct our praise to you. We want to do that now as we sing. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.